preaching for as long as I have been preaching, I'm aware of the fact that there are some messages, some topics, some texts uh, will touch some more than others, will relate to some more than others. And that's natural because we are not all on the same level of our faith. Uh, we have experience, different experiences as we walk with the Lord. We, we're not all the same. That's very understandable. But today's message, today's issue that I'll be preaching on touches every single person at the sound of my voice. Whether you're young or old, this is a message for you. You cannot switch off and say it's for somebody else. It's for you. Whether you've been a believer for 50 years or 50 days, this message is for you. Because I'm going to be speaking about pride. Yeah, you heard me right. Let me pronounce it correctly. Pride. Yeah. Now you understand why every one of us be touched by this issue, because I want to make a clarifying statement. The only people who do not have pride are those who have died. The only people who don't deal with pride on a regular basis are those who have gone with the Lord or maybe mentally incapacitated. So please, don't count yourself out and tune in very closely to what the Word of God is going to teach us today. Every human being is created with pride. Now, we call it ego in the psychological world. Whatever the name of it is, it is what it is. And why God created us with that pride? Because pride helps us accomplish things in life. Pride motivates us to achieve some goals in life. Pride encourages us uh, to be diligent in what we do. So the question is, is my pride out of control, or is it under the control of God the Holy Spirit? That is the difference. It's not that somebody has pride and the other one doesn't have pride. We all have pride. It is, is it an unbridled pride, or is it a controlled, sanctified pride under the Holy Spirit? You see, unbridled pride, listen carefully, manifests itself in anger, jealousy, envy, and being critical of others. In fact, unbridled pride leads to lying, loneliness, and self-pity. Unbridled pride can also lead to self-loathing and constantly being self-conscious pride that is not under the control of the Holy Spirit, is constantly asking, how do others perceive me? Uh, What impression am I making on others? How can I get people to take notice of me? And on and on and on and on. In fact, self-conscious pride plagues 
so many of our teenagers, and I'm going to talk about the teenagers, I'm going to speak to the teenagers in a minute, I'm going to tell you a lot more how proud I am of our teenagers in this church. Because this plaguing pride that is pressuring teenagers is causes them to try to conform to others. It causes them to want to be accepted by others. Often it leads them to doing things they normally would not do. It often leads them to go to places they do not want to go or they would not normally go. Listen to me. Pride at its deepest root is wanting to be accepted by others. But the godly, sanctified pride, recognizing the fact that I owe everything to God, that I am filled with gratitude and thanksgiving for the one who gave me everything. I give God the full credit for every gift I have, for every achievement I or in every accomplishment. And this is not something you do once and you move on. This is something you do every day. And as I've been suggesting, first thing in the morning, day after day after day. And beloved, that's where the praise-filled life comes in. Now, if you're visiting with us, we are right in the middle of a series of messages We're talking about experiencing triumph through praise. Please hear me right. Praising God is the greatest antidote to a runaway pride. Praising God is the best medicine for an out-of-control pride. Praising God is the best answer to all of the grief and the sorrow that can be created by an injured pride. But before I give you some biblical examples here, I want to remind you of a biblical principle, that is, a grammatical principle in the Greek language. Some of you know this, but let me repeat it just so that the rest of you understand it. Okay, there is a tense. Now, we have past and present and future and so on. <clears throat> but there is a tense in the Greek that doesn't exist in English. It's called the aorist tense. Now, you can get a revival over this word. Now, you're, well, I, I, I do. I have a one-man revival. Just think about the aorist tense. Now, you think I'm weird, but that's fine. That's all right, because I am. <laughs> you say, what's the big thing about the aorist tense in the Greek? Well... It's an action that takes place at a certain time, one-time action, but then it keeps on going, keeps on going, keeps on going. So, so it's, it's in the sense present, but also future. Uh, for example, the moment you surrender your life to Jesus Christ, you become saved. Can I get an amen? amen. But it don't stop there. You keep on being saved every single day. Every single day you are being saved. 
It doesn't stop on that experience. I have met people who say, well, I made a decision back yonder, so they're living like the devil and think they're saved. <laughs> well, I made a decision. I signed a decision card in the Billy Graham crusade, and that's it. No. That is, the moment of salvation is an event. That's how the Bible explains it, not, not me. <laughs> it's the beginning, not an end. Another example, the Bible said that we have crucified the flesh. That's the deep area in us where the pride dwells. <laughs> if you dig deep, deep down, you find it there. We crucified the flesh. Well, when you came to Jesus Christ, surrendered your life to Him, you have crucified. That's the one action that has taken place. But you keep on crucifying the flesh every single day. Now, you understand why I have a revival over the aorist tense in the Greek. <laughs> every day, constantly, sometimes every moment of every day, you have to crucify the flesh. Salvation is just one step. It keeps on going, keeps on going, and keeps on going. It's followed by a million other steps <laughs> throughout our lives. Otherwise, you become proud of your salvation. Hello? You, you, know, you know, people are very proud of their salvation. It's, it's like the, the old preacher who said, you know, I am such a humble man, and I'm very proud of my humility. <laughs> or like the couple who were dating. And uh, the girl looked at him and to the fellow, and she said, you know, the man I marry, he has to have the courage of a lion, but not too forward. He has to be as handsome as a Greek god, but not conceited. Uh, well, he has to be as wise as Solomon, but meek as a lamb. He must be kind to all women, but loves only me. Upon which, hearing this, the fellow said, how lucky you are you've met me. <laughs> Some of you will get that tomorrow at breakfast. Or like the young man, a Catholic boy who went for confession and confessional box with the priest, and, and he began to talk and began to talk, and finally the priest said, Son, you're not confessing, you're bragging. <laughs> Beloved, listen to me. The Scripture is filled with examples of unsanctified pride. And that unsanctified pride had led to a disaster, not only for the person, but sometimes for everybody around, including nations. Nebuchadnezzar, the emperor of Babylon, he had unbridled pride, and he turned into an animal. Uzziah, King Uzziah of Judah, good guy. He really is a good, was a good guy. And maybe I'll be preaching on him not many weeks from now. Uh, King Uzziah, good guy, did good things. But he allowed his pride to run wild and cause the destruction of Judah as well as his own destruction. I could go on and on and on. But this morning I want to use only two examples. Two examples of two people. One had his pride under control, the other one did not. So to give you the background, biblical background to what I'm going to be talking about, 
King David. You remember King Saul died. King David was sworn in to office, become the king of Israel. He unified the nation, and the first executive order King David has signed was to bring the Ark of the Covenant from the Philistine land where it was where they stole it, and to bring it back to Jerusalem. Now, the Ark is really, when you think about it, and the writers of the Lost Ark sort of popularized it, but it's really a very small box, contained the original Ten Commandments that were given by God to Moses, has Aaron's staff, and also had a jar of manna, so to remind him of God's provision in the wilderness. Now, the Ark of the Covenant is a symbol, just like the, the Lord's table is a symbol. It's symbolic. And whenever the Ark was there is a symbol of the fact that God is present in Israel. It's a symbolic thing. Does it mean when the, the ark is gone, God is not present? No, but it is symbolic in their mind. It's a symbol of the presence of God. So what happened? The group, terrorist groups around uh, the land of Israel uh, saw how the ark of the covenant bringing Israel victory, and they make such fuss about it, the ark of the covenant, the ark of the covenant, take it with them before they go to any war, and then they have victory. So they said, ah, we can hijack that ark, and we have the victory. <laughs> Just think about this. A lot of people think they can hijack the Holy Spirit. Beloved, listen. Listen to me. This is a clear illustration of how so many people around us who want a Christianity without Christ, they want Christianity without the cross, they want the trappings of Christianity without believing and obeying Christ. They want all of the blessings of God without submission to the authority of God. This is, this is happening right before us. They're not hijacking the Ark of the Covenant, but they're trying to hijack the truth. And they fail. And so, when the Ark went to the land of Philistine, what happened? It wasn't a blessing. It was a curse. They were cursed by the presence of the Ark of the Covenant in their country. So they were happily want to return it. And David issued the order, it has to come. Here's what happened. In coming of the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem, King David ordered a national celebration and praise of the Lord God Almighty. He wanted to praise Yahweh for all of His goodness, for all His mercy, but especially for allowing Him to have the Ark of the Covenant back. National praise of God was allowing them to bring the Ark of the Covenant back. And David appointed musicians. He appointed instrumentalists. He appointed singers to begin the celebration of publicly praise God. Publicly, publicly praise God. Ah, during the celebration, David got so carried away. I mean, really got carried away in the praising of God, in the honor of God, in blessing the name of God, that he did the unthinkable. Not the unthinkable in the eyes of everybody. It's the unthinkable in the eyes of his wife, Michael. Now, let me tell you about Michael in case you've forgotten who she was. 
Michael, David's wife, was the daughter of Saul, King Saul. Listen to me. <laughs> Michael was her father's daughter. You understand what I'm talking about. Michael inherited her father's self-centered pride. Michael inherited her father's poor, pathetic, insecure self-image. And so, what was that unthinkable that the king did? It's unthinkable in her own eyes. David got so carried away in the praise of God. <laughs> David um, was so exuberant in the praising of God. David was, got so excited in the praising of God. King David took off his royal robe. Tossed it out, probably. <laughs> Before Yahweh, in the praise of Yahweh. And he danced before the Lord with all his might. Now, if you turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 14. Now, if you have your instrument, the iPhone, iPad, you can type it in. But if you have your, if you don't, there's a Bible in front of you, grab it. I want you to follow with me, please. And I've been neglecting to give you the page to make it easier for you instead of trying to figure out Genesis, Exodus. It's page 479. Somebody looked it up and told me. 479 in the Pew Bible. Grab it and follow it with me because this is important. It's an amazing example of how pride can be subjugated to the Holy Spirit and vice versa. Here's what it says. 2 Samuel 6.14. 2 Samuel 6.14. David danced before the Lord with all, can you say all? all? All his might. Well, what does that mean? What does that mean? Dance before the Lord with all his might. David has forgotten who he is now that he's king. He's forgotten. He really didn't, but you understand. And he's forgotten who's watching, that everybody's looking at him. He danced before the Lord as if he's all alone with God. Now, I hate to tell you what I do when I'm all alone with God, praising God. Most times I just sit there and sob. David was so overwhelmed by the grace of God that he acted as if nobody else is around, just he and God. David was so overwhelmed with the goodness of God that he could not find words to express his praise to God. Now think about this. The man who wrote some of the most magnificent poetry, the man who wrote some of the most magnificent prayers, the man who wrote the most some of the most significant psalms, he is now without word, speechless. So much so that he stripped himself of his dignity as king. Why? To the honor of his Lord, to the praiseworthiness of his Lord, in adoration and thanksgiving for the grace of the Lord. The last thing on his mind 
was his own honor, his own dignity, or even his own position as a king. All he could think of was the glory of God. The praiseworthiness of God. But then, enter Her Majesty Queen Michael. First of all, she was not in the celebration. She was not participating in the praising of God. She was not even giving a helping hand for what's going on. No, 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 no. She was watching on television <laughs> or watching online. Now, that's and don't feel bad. I just want you to feel bad. <laughs> I want you to come here. God's people are here. She was watching from her window. They didn't have television back then, just in case the kids confused. And when she saw what she saw her husband, King David, doing, she was livid, livid. All she can think of was, just wait till he comes home. Ooh-wee. <laughs> Just wait till I get hold of him. Now, husbands and wives, can I tell you something? Uh, after nearly 50 years in marriage, I, I, I'm a man who made a lot of mistakes. Only God in heaven knows and my family knows. I made a lot of mistakes. But let me tell you just couple of pieces of advice, and, the, and they, they basically cost you what you pay for them, okay? Please, do not try to be a prophet to your spouse. Hello? Be a priest. Don't be a prophet. Don't make your home to be a place of cantankerousness. I don't know if there's a word that exists, but I made it up. Don't say... I'm going to let her have it. I'm going to let him have it. Please, life is very hard as it is. Make your home a haven. Make your home a joy-filled home. Make your home to be a delight to be in. Make your home a place where you both look forward to coming to. Make your home a place that you cannot wait to get to, make your home to be a place where you lift up each other, lift up each other, lift up each other. Can I get an amen? amen. Lift up each other. Queen Michael was waiting for King David not to bless him, not to thank God for him, not to say how great that you honored God and you didn't care about who's watching. No, 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 no. She had both guns, both barrels of both guns loaded. And as soon as he got through the door, and she bang, 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 bang. Whew. See, Michael's pride was running wild. 
was really running wild. And that is why she had a terrible, sick self-image and insecurity. I want young people now to listen to me, okay? Teenagers or not teenagers, all young people, listen to me. I, would, I, I love you dearly. I love the young people in, these, in this church because I am overwhelmed by their amazing maturity. And uh, talking about young people, last week I saw a school paper by Eliza Eberhardt. She's in the eighth grade. And the paper she wrote was a summary of my first series uh, in this series of messages. And she summarized all the four points. I want to tell you something. I was nearly in tears because I couldn't do a better job than she did. So some of these young people taking notes, I'm, 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 I'm mesmerized. I really am. And that is why I, I want to single them out to speak to them just for a minute. There is a difference between biblically healthy self-image and a sick self-image. I want to tell you the difference so you understand. A biblically healthy self-image says, I know that I am by birth and by nature fallen, have a depraved mind, and I'm prone to sin, but the king of all kings, the king of the universe, when I repented of my sins, he adopted me into his family. He gave me his last name. He forgave me all of my sins, past, present, and future. Uh, he has given me an unearned and undeserved grace. He appointed me as an ambassador of the king in my campus wherever you are. Now, beloved, that is a biblically healthy self-image. And that's all the confidence you need. It will give you all the confidence you need. Now, a sick self-image says, I'm very important in my own eyes. I might have some problems, but I'm not let anybody know about them. I feel terrible about myself, but... Oh, I will not let anyone get close enough to me to see this. I am going to project an image of myself that I want people to see. I am going to keep that mask on, and no one is going to let me take it off. Now, beloved, I believe with all my heart, God can heal a sick self-image. God can redeem a sick self-image. God can transform a sick self-image. God can change me, who's changed me, can change you, and He can change you from the inside out. But all has to begin with confession and repentance and humility before God. Listen, if you still have the Bible open in front of you, chapter 6, 2 Samuel. Okay, skip down, go down to verse 20. 2 Samuel 6.20. I want to show you an example of a sick self-image in Queen Michael. Now, by the way, here's a Yusuf translation. If you got it in front of you and you say, well, this is not what it says here, it's okay. You, you, you understand. You, you can reconcile both translations when you get home. 
Here's, here's how she did it. How is the king of Israel distinguished himself today? See, I'm blowing it up so you can see it. <laughs> Disrobing himself of his royal robe in front of the servants. This is how a low-class vulgar man would do. Of course, the Bible only gives us a summary of what she said. You see, it doesn't tell us everything. But here I'm going to take some liberty, because growing up in the Middle East, <laughs> I am closer to the culture than you realize. I always stay close to my roots. <laughs> you can imagine she probably says something like this. Just listen carefully. You grew up as a poor shepherd boy, but I grew up in the palace. It's in Hebrew, of course, not in English. See, that's what a sick, sick self-image does. Either forgets its roots or deliberately deny its roots. She didn't say anything about the fact that when Prophet Samuel found her father and made him king, he was only a donkey keeper and a lousy one at that. Oh, that, that's just the past. I'm not going to get back to my roots. I'm not going to let anybody see that. <laughs> he lost the donkeys that he's supposed to be taking care of when Samuel met him. She probably said to him, your family a bunch of yahoos, but I was brought up in the palace protocol. Her out-of-control pride not only prevented her from joy of participating in the praise of the Lord, but her out-of-control pride robbed her of the blessings that can only come from praising God. And she wanted to impose her misery on her husband. <laughs> David's response is classic. It's really a classic response, but I want you also to get the use of translation. You can underline it, and if you want to write it on the margin of your Bible, that's fine too. God is not going to punish you for that. I think David, if he spoke English, he would have said, protocol my foot. Did you get that? Protocol is the last thing on, that concerns me. I am made for the praise of the Lord. I am made to worship my God. I am made to honor my Lord. I am made for the praise of His glory. And furthermore, God honored me for honoring Him first and foremost. Let me ask you this. How many people do you know how many people do you know allow their so-called dignity to keep them from honoring, praising the Lord? By the way, a person who is not honoring the Lord publicly is because probably they're not praising God privately. How many people do you know who shout themselves silly in a ball game? 
But when it comes to praising God, mm, can't move the lips. How many people do you know who literally lose all inhibition at a stadium? But then the presence of God, they put their hands in their pocket. I don't know where this thing came from. I've seen it among young people particularly. I mean, people praising God and singing their heart out, and young people standing there with their hands in their pocket. They're just watching, looking at everybody else. I don't know where it came from. It came from we turn, the day we turned pulpits into stage and the church into audience. Now, my beloved, listen. Pride that is not under the control of the Holy Spirit has robbed many a people of the joy of praise and a praise-filled life. I'm not just talking about church, you know, I'm not talking about singing, I'm talking about a praise-filled life. Not only that, but an untrue heart, untrue heart has squashed the desire to praise God. Probably some of you are saying, well, Michael, what is this untrue heart? What does that mean? I'm glad you asked. I'm going to tell you. <laughs> the untrue heart is the heart that is insincere, that's hypocritical, that is filled with doubt. And that is why Hebrews 10.22 says, and it literally admonishes by saying, let us draw near to God with sincere, can you say sincere? sincere. Heart and full of assurance of faith. But then there are others who can make up a show of public worship, just only words. Their heart is far from God. Only God knows. Their heart is still filled with anger, with hatred, with envy, with lust, and with the rest of it. They may be able to mouth the words, but that's it. Here's a fact. To develop the praise-filled life, you cannot do it on your own strength. Beloved, listen to me. I know what I'm talking about. You cannot develop the praise-filled life with your own strength. You can't just say today, well, you know, okay, Michael, you brought me under conviction. I feel bad. I want to start. Not you. You're going to come to ask God. He will help you do it. You can't do it on your own. And the first thing you need to do is to, if you want to develop a praise-filled life, you need, you need to come clean with God. You need to come clean with God. Surrendering your intellect, surrendering your feelings, and yes, surrendering your will. And then you do the same thing all over again every single morning. That, my beloved friend, is the sacrifice of praise. It was a thought about, well, why does the Bible call it the sacrifice of praise? And we just get up and sing. And say, you know, that kind of thing. That's because we don't understand what a praise-filled life is. But when you understand the praise-filled life, you understand that there is a sacrifice that goes into it. And I'm going to say more about this in, in, when I get back from Egypt, and I appreciate your prayers. Uh, I'm going back to my roots. I always go back to my roots. <laughs> I, want, I want to be like David, not Michael. Uh, I want to go back to my roots. And you've got two fantastic preachers, by the way. I'm just sorry. I'm interrupting myself here. 
uh, RT and Jay uh, Slack. I mean, they are some great preachers, so don't miss them. And God willing, after our minister in the Middle East, I'll be back, and I'm going to say more about the sacrifice of praise. I want to tell you this as I conclude. One of the hardest things for me personally and I've done maybe three or four times in my years of preaching, one of the hardest things for me to preach on is Abraham offering his son Isaac as a sacrifice. Other than the cross, and the cross just makes me fall apart, because I recognize that my sins that he carried on that cross, and because I've been set free by the blood that was shed on that cross. But preaching and teaching about Abraham offering Isaac, I got to confess to you, next to the cross is the most difficult thing I've ever done. God is asking Abraham to offer the object of his love. He's asking him to offer the object of his joy. He's asking him to offer the object of his life. Listen to me. It is painful enough to lose a child. Even though there was a common practice at the day, back then, at the time of Abraham, even pagans did it to their gods, even though it's common practice, nonetheless, it is hard. It is difficult. You can't imagine willingly do that. But you know, the Lord often teaches me some things when I get to that passage and the difficulty I have. He teaches me some lessons, and I'll share them with you. The first question the Lord asked me is this. Did God, and you can answer, did God want Abraham to really sacrifice Isaac? No, God bless you. Did God let him sacrifice Isaac? No. Did God need Isaac? No, he gave him Isaac. After 25 years of waiting, he gave him to him as a fulfillment of that promise he made 25 years earlier. Now, beloved, in many ways, praise is a sacrifice. It's a sacrifice. As I said, I'm going to say more about this in the weeks to come. And that's why the Bible call it the sacrifice of praise. And you say, well, why is that? Why is it a sacrifice? Because praise, genuine praise, costs us something. Genuine thanksgiving and praise to God costs us our pride. It does. Genuine praise-filled life costs us the self-made label. You know what I'm talking about? Praise costs us our own self-importance. 
praise cost us our own self-sufficiency. Praise requires us to say to the Lord, Lord, I yield all my possessions. I yield all my dreams. I yield all my goals. Lord, I yield all of my relationships. Lord, I yield my all, my all, my all, my all. Beloved, that is the praise-filled life that's worthy of the name. Mouthing few words, that's not it. Developing a praise-filled life costs us something. But every time I think of what it cost Him on that cross, whatever it is I'm willing to offer, and most times He doesn't take it, (laughs) but you're willing to offer it just like with Isaac. He didn't take Him. He just wanted to see, is He willing? I think of the cross. He was not only willing, but He did it for you and you and you and you and me. Lord, I'm so overwhelmed. With your amazing grace. I'm so overwhelmed. By your amazing love. And have for 54 years. And I pray that always will be until I can praise you in person in heaven. And I pray that for all my brothers and sisters in Christ. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.